Hey everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Wathen and today we are here with Michael Igo to talk about a bunch of big, big stories having to do with the World Bank. It's been all over the news for a number of different reasons. But this week I thought we would try something a little bit different and get started with an icebreaker, mostly just to stress out our fabulous guest, Michael. Mission accomplished. <laughs> All right, so we're just gonna dive right into this. This will be just a small portion of this, and then we will get into these bigger topics that we're looking at. Shoot. Okay, icebreaker question number one. Okay. It's Thursday night. Would you rather, hypothetically, it's Thursday night. Would you rather read a UN report or do your taxes? Read a UN report or do my taxes on a Thursday night? Yes. If it's next Thursday night, I will actually be at a UN conference on taxes. You are avoiding the question. <laughs> <laughs> Reading a UN report about taxes. I gave you an A or B answer. <laughs> it's B. Reading a UN report. Okay, excellent. But at least you like maybe get some money back or maybe owe money. I understand. And for those of you tuning in, if you have answers to these questions, please feel free to leave them in the comments. Number two. Are you ready for this one? Ready. The year is 2001. Okay. And you have just been deployed on a six-month USAID assignment. You okay. can take one album with you because this is 2001 and you only have CDs and there are no iPods yet. What album do you take with you? In 2001. In 2001. Does it have to reflect my musical tastes as they were in 2001? Oh, that's tempting. Yes. Let's say no. <laughs> <laughs> fine, fine. Um, no. All right, well... Since the Eagles just won the Super Bowl. Congratulations. We're going to represent Philadelphia and go with The Roots. Okay. Things Fall Apart. Fantastic album. Straight out of Philly. And I think it would apply in a lot of different contexts and situations given that I only have one album to listen to for six months. That is a fantastic answer Thank to that you. question. Okay, this is question three. And just so everyone at home knows, Michael does not know what this question is. But this is a superlative. Who would you vote most likely to know every lyric to the Queen mega-hit Bohemian Rhapsody? Who would scream sing this song while playing air guitar? Okay. <laughs> World Bank President Jim Kim? Oh no, alright. <laughs> or IMF Chief Christine Lagarde? So I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I think the answer is pretty obvious. If you happen to have done a YouTube search for Jim Kim, you will be familiar with his dance moves. That is true. As that is Dartmouth true. president, he was well known for getting up on stage. I'm blanking out what the song was that he, uh, he danced to, and I'm sure everyone is Googling at home, but I have to go with with Jim Kim. Okay, there was a flash mob, I believe, too. If you Google Jim Kim flash mob, he's pretty that's well known for public theatrics, so yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't put this past him. Personally, that would have not been my choice, <laughs> but I feel like I know you better. Was the choice who the choice it was who Who's I would most, expect to yeah. do it. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna stick with that answer. Okay, fine. Then that is a nice segue into what we're talking about today, which you is You feel like you know me now? I mean I do feel like I know you now. Good. This is the only criteria that I needed for knowing <laughs> who Michael Igo is as a person. So we are talking about a new era for the World Bank, 
this has to do with a lot of things, but let's just start with him, the news. Why has there been this increased attention on the World Bank lately? What does that, what, just, what does the world look like? In yeah, the I mean, it's a, it's a good and complicated question. I think um, it's probably a combination of things. There's sort of the just unpredictability and, un, and spontaneity of, of a news cycle and a few interesting things have just popped up in uh, news articles recently related to the World Bank. Um, but then it's also an institution that's just at an interesting point in its historical evolution. Um, let me talk about the first part first. So, uh, you know, in the news we've seen some, some interesting things, some sort of slightly gossipy things. Drama. Um, some dramatic things. So, very well-known economist Paul Romer, who had served as the World Bank's chief economist, stepped down um, a few weeks ago amid, you know, a sort of low-key scandal <laughs> involving economic methodology, you know, these are the sort of scandals that Nothing we get. Nothing says scandal like economic methodology. Exactly, yeah. Um, but, you know, this is someone who's sort of known to ruffle feathers and went into, uh, you know, a very bureaucratic institution, the World Bank, and, and did exactly that. So, um, you know, this, this came out in the news, Paul Romer ended up stepping down, and there was definitely some, some turmoil and consternation over that. It had to do with the, the bank's doing business report which ranks countries according to the ease of doing business um, inside of their borders. Right, and he had made a comment on the record saying that he felt like there might have been just not wholly fair methodology used. There might have, he inferred there could have been political influence in the report. He later recanted that. That's right, yeah, it's hard to know, having not been in the room with the Wall Street <coughs> Journal reporters who did the interview, um, what exactly was inferred and what wasn't. Um, but he, he implied that there might have been some political motivations behind. He was said to have implied that there might have been some political motivations behind the World Bank's rankings. And we can talk about why that's important a bit later when we go into some of the other things that are happening. Yeah, but, but this is just one, one reason that the World Bank has kind of been in the news. Another is there was a big New York Times story last week about how, you know, I think the title was something like Jim Kim is trying to remake the World Bank as like a creature of Wall Street or yeah. something like that. And, you know, that's a kind of maybe dramatic way to put it, but he, Jim Kim is trying to make this a more business savvy institution. That's right. He's kind of himself as kind of a controversial character for reasons other than just that. So let's talk about his first term. Sure, yeah. So Jim Kim is now in his second term. His first term concluded last summer. Um, I think, you know, that first term uh, was largely dominated by this internal reorganization that he undertook, which, you know, he himself would admit created a lot of noise and, and quite a bit of controversy. There's no disputing that. There was a point, and we covered this in DevEx, and it got a lot of attention elsewhere as well. Employees were posting um, these yellow slips of paper in the World Bank atrium, sort of, um, you know, protesting his his reorganization and and organizing um, different sort of speak out events. Um, so that got a, a lot of attention, and that I think really kind of uh, characterized and dominated Jim Kim's first term at the bank. And just in like one sentence, what was the purpose of that reorg? So, in Jim Kim's formulation, the purpose of the reorg was to sort of break down the, the structure that the bank had previously, which kind of crossed countries, 
and uh, regions with functional areas and to sort of pull all that apart into these bigger, they're called global practices that are each focused on specific issues. Like there's one on climate change, um, governance, a range of things like that, sort of more sectors. And the idea was that that would allow the bank to um, spread its knowledge and skills and capabilities more easily across the regions of the, the globe and to be able to focus on global issues that um, you know, aren't limited to, to one country. Okay, so like that, climate change. So that, you know, there was definitely a vision for that reorg, but it caused a lot of heartburn. Then some of that we've heard is still has carried over to now. Coming into his second term, I want to hear a bit about this pivot towards like making a more business savvy institution. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, with the reorg sort of largely behind him and what we hear is that things have, have more or less settled there. Um, I should note that, you know, after that first term, there was this reappointment process, and I think that sort of raised some eyebrows as well. Um, some observers who hoped that things would be that it would be a, a highly competitive process to appoint the next World Bank president had concerns that it was less transparent than it might have been. Um, you know, all of that is is widely disputed. Yeah, we should definitely. We actually we will get into why there is some consternation around that process with Jim Kim coming into office before Trump. You know, had kind of the surprise election. So I want to talk about Trump and multilateralism in a bit, and just yeah. that whole that whole bucket that yeah. we will open. But as far as this pivot towards kind of remaking as a group as a creature of Wall Street. What is that about yeah. and why? So if the first term was about this internal reorganization, I think the second term is much more about fundamentally shifting the World Bank's business model in the ways that you're describing. And you know, if we think of the World Bank, what it's mostly done in the past is give loans to governments to do infrastructure projects. So taking its own resources and uh, you know, making these, these loans at low interest rates for developing countries um, available so that they can pursue projects that they hope will have impact for development. Um, but what Jim Kim has recognized, and you know, a lot of people have recognized, is that there just isn't enough money out there to achieve, for example, the sustainable development goals using those pots of money, using um, money that countries are giving generously to the World Bank or to other development donors. So you're going to have to find money somewhere else. And where that other money exists is in the private sector, in what President Kim refers to as these sort of pools that are sitting on the sidelines, not really doing anything. So big pension funds or um, sovereign wealth funds, other kinds of, of pools of capital that he thinks could be made to work for development. Yeah, and it's worth noting that I think it's something every year the private sector invests about a trillion dollars into emerging markets. And what the World Bank puts into emerging markets is not near that much. Yeah, I mean, this is all sort of captured in the, the agenda or um, moniker of billions to trillions. And so, you know, now we're sp spending billions, we need to be spending trillions. And so, President Kim, I think, sees in the World Bank an opportunity to facilitate that ramp up. And so he's looking at the institution's tools, looking at the tools in ways that he might use them differently to try to bring that additional capital in. So I do want to pause real quick and let everyone know who may have tuned in after the first two minutes of this. I am Kate Wathen here with senior reporter Michael Igo. We are talking about 
the World Bank leader, Jim Kim's vision for the World Bank and kind of trying to remake it as a more business savvy institution. So the reason, that there are many reasons that this is controversial internally. A big one that we've heard and that we've reported on is that, you know, dealing with the private sector just like for people who are economists at the World Bank or people who work at the World Bank, working with the private sector just requires an entire different set of skills and set of relationships. And we've heard that they might just not be set up to deliver on such a model. So I guess there are two questions here. One is whether this pivot is even the right approach. And then the other question is whether the bank in with all of its layers of and levels of bureaucracy is set up to deliver. Yeah. Um. So those are precisely the questions that I think is going to carry are, are going to carry a lot of our reporting, um, and we don't have good answers for them. <laughs> so I think you know those are those are exactly the right questions to be asking and, and things to be looking into. Um, I mean the concerns you know, as you outlined, you've got an institution that's been doing something for half a dec half a, a century, um, and now the president wants them to to do something slightly different, which is instead of you know finding potential deals, bringing them to the board, relatively safe things that they know will get approved and, and that the bank will be able to uh, finance. You know, you have to start thinking about all of these different actors that you want to bring to the table and what each of their different needs is going to be and then how you structure that in a way that, you know, the, the private uh, investors that you're bringing on board are going to be satisfied with their returns, but not so satisfied that they're you know, exploiting the, the government partners that you're bringing to the table who are expecting this to be mutually beneficial. And all the while, this is an institution whose uh, stated goal, and you know, Kim repeatedly emphasizes this, is eradicating extreme poverty. So how do you keep a, a sharp focus on that goal this whole time? So I do think there are some questions about, you know, whether the bank is, is staffed and skilled to perform this specific function, which is like structuring public-private partnerships versus finding uh, investable opportunities and then bringing those to the board for approval. It's a different mindset. A different mindset. And, you know, it's not sexy to talk about HR processes and incentives for things, but something that has been raised in other articles, too, is this um, this idea of the incentive structure and that to kind of deliver on this new vision, it requires the people who work at the World Bank to work against their own incentives. So it just feels like there are a lot of things that need to come together. And he has four and a half years left in his term? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this incentives thing is when people ask President Kim about inst institutionalizing this vision, I think this is one of the areas where he gets more specific. Um, changing the incentives that, that World Bank staff are working towards. So in the past, you would, if you're a World Bank staffer who's preparing a project, um, you, know, you get credit for bringing a project to the board that they approve and then disperse the, the funding for. Um, but that's not what he wants staff to be doing in the future. He wants them to be bringing projects to the board to get approved to be offloaded to the private sector. So it's you know, middleman. Yeah, more of a middleman role, a broker role. Um, and so how do you reward staff for doing that when it's not what they've been rewarded for before? Um, so that's one way, you know, if you can sort of change that system, that's one way you might be able to institutionalize this mindset. But then it brings to mind these questions about, you know, well, what kind of background do people 
need to be able to do that in the first place and are incentives enough and so I think there's a lot there to be looking into. We hinted at this earlier but there is a bit of a tenuous relationship between the World Bank and the White House. Jim Kim's election happened just before the U.S. election. Historically, the U.S. has always had quite a bit of say in who becomes um, who becomes president of the World Bank. This was not Trump's pick, so to speak. And so there's sort of that dynamic there, the kind of the relationship and the timing, and also the, the Trump administration, despite you know, presiding over the World Bank's largest pool of donor dollars, just isn't very, doesn't seem very excited about the idea of multilateralism. <laughs> so... Fairly put. <laughs> what do you think about that? Where do you see that going? Can you talk a bit about that dynamic yeah. and how it's played out? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's been really fascinating to watch. Um, and I think there's sort of, there are a number of things to, to keep tabs on. Um, I think Jim Kim has revealed himself to be a pretty politically savvy person, and we saw his collaboration with Ivanka Trump on this women's empowerment fund um, that, you know, generated a little more noise internally inside of the bank, um, but might have done well to uh, to bring the bank closer together with the White House and to, to build some mutual uh, interest there. I think where the rubber is really going to hit the road is on this issue of whether the bank can secure a capital increase that it's been seeking for a long time. So if you think about pivoting an institution from uh, the thing that it's been doing for a long time of distributing grant, uh, loans to, to country, the bank does a lot of things, but that's, you know, I'm referring to that as sort of the, the bulk of, of the bank's work. If you think about pivoting from that to something much more complicated and, and playing a role in, in structuring these private sector deals and so on. Um, the bank's going to need more resources to do that, to play this, this new role in the development finance landscape and to um, you know, stay central to a lot of the things that are going on. So it's asking for more capital from its shareholders, the largest of whom, as you said, is the United States. And the uh, United States Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has been reticent about uh, granting that, and he has some sort of demands that, that the bank would need to consider before the U.S. government is willing to put in more money. Demands like what? Demands like the bank reconsidering its lending to middle-income countries. God. <laughs> <laughs> that, Sorry. That apparently struck a chord with Kate. Um, and when we think when we talk about middle income countries, I think it's sort of read between the lines. It's China. It's not yeah. even reading between the lines. That's very explicitly the issue. Should the bank be lending to China? Which I mean is is a totally valid question, and especially in this time when China is just growing its influence and putting a bunch of money into development initiatives elsewhere. Um, I feel like we could have a whole nother show. Yeah. On that. The, just really quickly, there's sort of two two things to keep in mind when thinking about. Should they or shouldn't they lend to China? Um, sort of geopolitics aside, uh, you know, one of the World Bank's two goals is ending extreme poverty. Many of the extreme poor live in middle-income countries. In fact, yes. the vast majority of them do. Um, so, if you're serious about achieving that goal, you've got to be thinking about where poor people actually live and yeah. how you're uh, providing services that are responsive to them. Um, 
And then the second part has slipped my mind, but I'm sure I'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah, so back to the demands. Yeah. So one was once, you know, Manishan wants the World Bank to stop lending to middle-income countries. Were there others? Um, yeah, some issues around budget and whether the bank can be sort of more streamlined and things like that. Yeah. And it feels like there is some some comparison to be made or some connection to be made between you know, the World Bank trying to be more of a middleman working with Wall Street types and Trump's kind of deal-making business, um, you know, philosophy over government. That just, that seems like maybe they could find some common ground in there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, there's a, I do think Jim Kim is a, a savvy politician and, um, you know, I can't speak to his core motivations in talking about these things, but I do think it's a narrative that's going to appeal to people who, who believe that you know, just sort of um, delivering development assistance to countries in perpetuity is not a sustainable model for financing towards the sustainable development goals, and there needs to be some sort of longer-term vision that that brings in financing that's going to generate its own returns and be able to um, fund these things you know longer than official development assistance can but you know where this gets into a lot of really complicated and tricky territory is when you start talking about well what should be financed through private sector capital versus public funding and people have you know very strong and principled feelings about those questions. Yeah. Should education be financed through the private sector? Should health? Um, you know, we've seen some really interesting studies that um, that get into this recently. We at DevX, we've done a lot of reporting on on private sector funding for education and and the various trade offs involved there. So and now it's sometimes a disaster. It can be. Yes. Um, a lot of big questions raised, and I think we'll certainly be looking out for the fate of this capital increase that the World Bank is looking for. Back to its leadership, there was an article in the Harvard Crimson last week that talked about how you know the presidential search committee for Harvard was yeah. you know getting in touch with Jim Kim. Any any news there? <laughs> any ideas about what could unfold in the future? And if he did go to Harvard, who would take his place? This speculative business is not one that I want to be part of uh, on, a, on a live news show. Um, it's, I mean, it's interesting. So, you know, there's the Crimson reported that apparently he was on some sort of list for the Harvard presidency search. And then they also reported that, that Jim Kim sent an email to staff saying he had every intention of staying at the World Bank. Um, beyond that, anything would just be speculation. But I think, you know, stories like that motivate this sort of reflection on what Jim Kim is trying to do, the amount of time that he has to get it done, and whether that's achievable. So can you shift the World Bank's business model in four and a half years? You know, yeah. When you, you see stories about, well, is he even going to be around that long? Then it's like, um, you know, that, that question takes on sort of even greater urgency. Yeah. But at this point, I think speculating about any kind of departure would be um, 
unwise. No, no, no. <laughs> we do not want to speculate on this show, but you do have a depth of knowledge that most of us are just not even privy to. So would be but he doesn't, remiss. He doesn't consult ask. with me on career moves. Are you sure? <laughs> Maybe he should. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. All right. So I can say that I am not uh, planning to leave DevX to become the next president of the World Bank. Thank God. In case there was any. Thank God. Although, I don't know, maybe that would be a good thing. I'll have to give more thought to it this. It wouldn't. <laughs> so before we go, we only have a couple more minutes. If you have any questions, please feel free to drop them in the comments. But in the meantime, are there three big stories just beyond the World Bank that folks can look out for this week in international development? Yeah. Um, we have correspondents all over the world covering all the big stories. Um, Amy Lieberman is headed to Haiti this week. She's going to be looking into uh, issues around localization there, so talking to, to local organizations it should be a fascinating trip, and we're excited to see what she, what she brings back from that. Um, just yesterday, the U.S. State Department released its first review of the highly controversial expanded Mexico City policy. Ooh, any just quick insight to give on that before we publish a story on it? Well, from the State Department's perspective, it's sort of a combination of it's far too early to draw all of our conclusions um, and, you know, sort of trying to, to play down any disruption that this has so far caused. Interesting, because we're getting a lot of op-eds that say that there have been plenty of outcomes so far Yeah. point to. Certainly lots of strong feelings on both sides of this issue, and I think you know, where we're trying to play a role is to um, dig through a lot of those press releases that we're getting and yes, really to course. look at the, the impact on the ground. Um, but certainly it's something that's going to be critical to, to keep watching. Um, on the you know, additional stuff on the U.S. government side, we're just trying to keep track of the uh, reorganization that's ongoing inside of USAID and other agencies. Um, we are looking at efforts to improve, enhance, enlarge U.S. development finance capabilities, which is an exciting potential development for this year. And um, our colleagues in the U.K. are looking at the changing uh, political landscape there as it pertains to the U.K.'s commitment on official development assistance. Sort of, you know, this ongoing battle for the 0.7% seems to be ratcheting up again. Um, so a lot to keep track of. Lots yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. I do think that, especially after this show, it would be good to note, maybe more for, for me, that any opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the opinions of DevX. You know, they, they gave me a show, and occasionally I make faces or something that might indicate they feel one way or another, but those are in no way um, reflective of DevX. Please tune in next week. We are actually going to be looking at biometrics and digital IDs. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and on Instagram. Michael, thank you so much for joining us thank and you. look forward to welcoming you next week.